0: Uh, programs as opposed to printed because it would be hard to make that change uh, on the fly otherwise. Uh, Dr. Treisman is also uh, participating in the IRB at Hopkins and they have a meeting that he has to phone into uh, this afternoon so we moved him to a little bit earlier. Uh, Dr. Treisman is a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins. He's also got a PhD in pharmacology and you put those two things together and you get an aid psychiatrist, which there aren't many. Um, And so he's going to talk to us today about addiction, Um, and uh, I think we're in for another treat from Dr. Treisman. Welcome back.
1: Thank you, Dr. Sag. How many people feel like Dr. Sag is a little more subdued than usual? Raise your hands. Okay. And I just want you to know, I picked the wines at dinner last night, and it's my fault. Not saying he's hungover, or that he had more wine than usual, but he does seem subdued um, I want to talk to you today about uh, addictions a little bit, um, and the integrated treatment for addictions. Ha! I have nothing to disclose. Uh, no relevant uh, commercial relationships, so I'll give you two irrelevant ones to make up for it. I'm not sure this managed care thing is as good as they say it is, and uh, George Harrison was the best beetle. So I'll disclose those things about myself. Um, please, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the characteristics of addiction, Uh, discuss a disease and behavioral models of addiction and describe a framework for treatment. So, all the following patients have an increased risk for addiction except um, one is a 57-year-old white male with a difficult high-stress job at the University Medical Center that does not appreciate him, two, a 57-year-old white married male with two female first-degree relatives in the previous generation who drank alcohol excessively, three, a 57-year-old white married male with a history of depression, recent job termination for irritating the dean, Four, 57-year-old white married male, a long history of impulsive behavior, ADHD, and chronic low back pain. and Five, 57-year-old white married male, raised in a family with substance abuse, and in a community with extensive substance use. Vote. Two, one, and most of you thought the least risk was uh, me. And uh, um, some of you thought that the least risk was uh, me, number two. Um, um, I haven't yet been terminated for irritating the dean, although, certainly in the cards if I keep going. Um, a lot of people think I have ADHD, but I don't. Um, uh, and I don't have any low back pain, except for when I'm with the dean. And then. Uh, um, I didn't grow up with a lot of substance use around me, but I do have a family history. So um, it, you know, I, I think that people, a lot of people are under stress, and people report stress in a variety of ways. But we are all fairly stressed. And so the studies looking at stress as a risk factor haven't been very good at defining what stress is. But for a lot of people, they feel much more stressed when they're depressed. And so um, of the people up here, Um, I think most of you got the answer that I would have given. Um, Which of the following have been described as elements of treatment for addiction? Um, One, conversion, two, detoxification, three, rehabilitation, four, treatment of comorbid conditions, and five, all of the above. Good. You're all right. Um, All the following are true about drugs that cause addiction except, one, all addictive drugs will increase the rate or frequency of behaviors that occur right before they are given, two, all addictive drugs are self-administered in animal models, three, all drugs that can cause withdrawal cause addiction, four, all drugs that cause addiction have been found to have an action at dopamine reward centers in your brain, and five, addictive drugs vary in the likelihood of causing addiction. Wow, out of range. So, um, good, I, th- I think I'm going to answer this for you during the talk, and we'll see, we'll see if we can change the way that looks. Um, so, the first question, this is need cash for alcohol research. It's one of my patients. A, actually has tenure at Hopkins. He's there more than I am. Usually in the ER, oddly enough, even though he's not an ER doc. Um, uh, this is the prevalence of HIV in intravenous drug users. And the reason I showed you this map is because it looks very different than the map we see when we think about uh, the prevalence of HIV overall. But you'll see that uh, places that you didn't think of as, uh, as uh, particularly high-density populations are high-density. We tend to ignore IV drug use as a risk factor and an issue because uh, the patients are, uh, are bad people and we hate them. And uh, they don't have any power or vote, and so they're a vulnerable subpopulation, and they get ignored as they get ignored in healthcare. Um, and uh, this is the trend in lifetime prevalence of narcotics not taken under doctor's orders. And uh, you see, these are 12th graders in the uh, in the diamonds. And look at these numbers. I mean, this is really terrifying. These are people using prescription opiates, and uh, it's it's going crazy. Um, and um, these are the drugs. Uh, these are the drugs that uh, that that uh, people take and overdose and die from. And what you see is, um, surprisingly, there isn't that much change in heroin. But look at methadone, and uh, cocaine, of course, and then look at uh, other opiates. These are prescribed opiates, and uh, this is uh, uh, synthetic narcotics uh, like uh, Duragesic patches, which people would dissolve in water and surprisingly die uh, when they overdose on them. So. We have a huge problem with, uh, with prescription narcotics in the United States and overdose. This is the latest product. These are Dixie Elixirs, Medibles, coming out of Colorado. And uh, these are directed solely at people with chronic pain who are older. And uh, so they come in flavors that are directed directly at people with chronic pain, like sweet tea, pink lemonade, strawberry, orange grape, and root beer. Um, Those is clearly the preference of elderly people. Um, and they're available in, uh, in um, extra-strength one-ounce melon and dewdrop little bottles, in case you need a real charge of uh, cannabinoids. So um, we, are, we are seeing an explosion of both pressures to use more addictive drugs and pressures against using more addictive drugs. Um, so this is, this is a little thing that shows that... Uh, Cannabinoids treat ADHD. Marijuana is used to treat ADHD. Uh, it's used to create ADHD. I'm not sure, but they have, You'll notice this says scientific references. Uh, I want to tell you that there's not very scientific uh, in their references. They were. This slide was made by people clearly taking cannabinoids and reading these papers. Um, this is a this is a study looking at the effect. Of, this is England looking at the effect of opiate substitution on hepatitis C incidence. Basically, what it shows is if you get people on uh, opiate substitution, you get less hepatitis C. I think it's pretty important. Um, this shows you the, the uh, <coughs> probability of getting an opiate agonist therapy um, in clinics that are using integrated care. this is George Lucas's study from our from our um, from our program. And basically, what you see is uh, the the uh, longer you go, the more likely you are to get. Uh, to get put on suboxone if you're an at-risk patient. And when you get put on it, you're much more likely to succeed with heart. The longer you're on buprenorphine, the more likely you are to succeed with heart. So not only putting people on suboxone gets them them to a place where they're on heart, but it gets them to a place where they do well. But the longer they're on it, the better they do. So we want to treat drug addiction. We can treat drug addiction. And we don't treat drug addiction. The reason we don't treat it is our patients are in the discard pile. HIV patients, black people, Hispanic people, poor people, undocumented people, are in the discard pile. We don't want to spend any money on those people. We could save it and buy yachts, and uh, it's much more important. Um, this basically shows you that if you saw me once in our HIV clinic, your chances of survival go up. And, uh, and that's not me, that's anybody on my team. So people referred to psychiatric treatment are actually more likely to survive than people who aren't. And that's that shows we're effective. We can treat drug addiction. We can treat psychiatric disorders. We just don't want to because they're expensive. But it's more expensive. Um, one of my patients says, you know, Dr. Treisman, it's like people not wanting to fix the roof. And then when the ceiling caves in, they have to fix the ceiling and the roof. We don't want to fix the roof. But if we don't fix the roof, the leaks are going to hurt us. Um, so addiction is not the same as dependence. And um, lots of drugs produce physical dependence where you have withdrawal. Um, They're not necessarily addicting. Um, There's a withdrawal from uh, a lot of antihypertensive drugs, where you have a rebound elevation, or you can feel cruddy. Um, How many of you are addicted to caffeine? Raise your hands. How many of you are willing to have sex with a person who hasn't bathed in three weeks to get a cup of coffee? Raise your hands. (laughs) Welcome to cocaine. Um, so, uh, So being dependent on caffeine is not the same as being addicted to caffeine. We throw the term around. I like the term addiction. It's in, the drug, in the drug treatment and drug investigation addiction world, people don't like the word addiction anymore. They like dependence and, uh, and, uh, and abuse and words like that. Addiction means something, though. And people continue to use addiction because it's the best word. But when you use it, the difference between being dependent on something and being addicted to it is quite, quite important. And uh, so I've seen one, uh, I've actually seen three, but I've seen one colleague who's addicted to caffeine, a cardiologist at Hopkins, who would drink three to five pots of coffee in the morning, um, and uh, would get tremulous and shaky and thought disordered. And his job was threatened by his caffeine use. And he said, I love the clarity of thought you get after you've had a really intense caffeine experience. And it may have been clear to him, but to the rest of us, the clarity of thought wasn't so clear. And uh, he had to stop drinking coffee. He was truly addicted to it. So when you say addiction, what do you mean? And what I mean is continuing use of the drug despite mounting consequences. In fact, increasing use of the drug despite mounting consequences. Somebody gets a DWI and doesn't drink alcohol for five years. They may have been getting addicted, but they weren't addicted. Someone who drinks alcohol gets a DWI, and then two weeks later gets another DWI. That person is addicted. They're continuing to use, even at increased rates, despite serious consequences. And uh, eventually, these addictive behaviors disrupt all functions of life. They disrupt your job, they disrupt your relationships, they disrupt every element of human behavior in a, in a way that's disordering. So addiction is a disordering behavior driven by these drugs. Um, and uh, Drugs become addictive because they produce tolerance, that is, increasing drug needed to get the same effect. Uh, They produce physical dependence, even cocaine produces a modest physical dependence, and they provide reinforcement. And that's the most important one. And reinforcement means that whatever behavior you were doing when you were using the drug, you'll continue and increase the use of that behavior. And uh, so you can show that animals, whatever they were doing right before you gave them the drug, they will increase that behavior when you give them drugs, addictive drugs. Non-addictive drugs don't do that. And um, this is your brain on drugs. Uh, This is actually a rat brain, but it's similar to your brain. And you see this red thing going up to this blue thing. This is the nucleus accumbens and the ascending mesolimic dopamine pathway. And this pathway is the thing that when you shoot a basket from 30 feet and it swishes, you get a little, yeah! That's the pathway that does that. If you really like great wine, and you taste that third wine I ordered last night, and you get a you know, yeah from it. you don't like wine, you think, oh, grape juice. But um, that pathway is different in everybody in terms of what fires it. Some of you find bowling incredibly boring. Others, you love to bowl. If you love bowling, you get a strike, you get a little yeah. And uh, I learned that from a patient who's a bowler, by the way, who described this pathway to me. He said, when I was sick before you treated me, when I get a strike, I think, eh, that's what's supposed to happen. But now that I'm better on my medicines, when I get a strike, I turn around to my team and I go, yeah! And I think depression is a disease of your yeah receptors. And uh, that's true. Depression is a disease of the receptors for dopamine in this area. And this pathway is where all addictive drugs work. They either fire this so it releases here or release drugs right here. Release the transmitter right here. And that's the, uh, that's the pathway. If you stick a needle in that part of the brain, by the way, so that you stimulate it when you press a little electric circuit. A rat will sit there all day long pressing that little button to get a little electric current into that part of the brain. This is why we get out of bed in the morning, and addictive drugs work there. And um, the, the most well-described addictive drugs are in the, on this slide, uh, psychomotor stimulants like, uh, like uh, amphetamines and cocaine, uh, opiates, sedative hypnotics, including alcohol, uh, benzodiazepines, Carbituates, cannabinoids, fencyclidine, PCP, and, uh, and ketamine. Uh, all of you are using ketamine now for everything. It's, uh, it's bad. Be Careful. Um, hallucinogens, maybe. And nicotine and caffeine to a mild extent. So these are things that will reinforce behavior and cause addiction. So when you take the test, people will say addiction is a disease. Um, but I don't think really it is a disease, and I'm going to tell you why. I don't think it's purely a result of your environment. I don't think it's a problem of the type of person, addictive personality. I think it's a conditioned behavior that becomes self-sustaining. But, all of these things play a role in this. And that's why these are, people fight about which of these things it is. Whether it's because you have an addictive personality, because your mommy breastfed you with alcohol, or because you, you have a disease of your brain. Now, one of the things that's nice about saying addiction is a disease, is that um, it removes stigma. If we say addiction is a disease, we're saying this is a medical condition. And that's useful because it is a medical condition and it emphasizes medical treatment. The problem with the idea that it's a disease is, you all see diseases every day. And when your patients get a disease, you don't get mad at them. But when your patient who stopped drinking six months ago relapses, you do get mad at them. And that's not because you're a moron, that's because you've recognized some difference between diseases and behaviors. So if I took your patient with schizophrenia and put him in a chair right there, in front of everybody, and every time he hallucinated, I gave him a little electric shock, the frequency of hallucinations wouldn't go down. In fact, it would go up. You can't send anybody with congestive heart failure to a 12-step program and get them to stop having congestive heart failure. People with addictions, if you put them in that same chair, gave them electric shock when they drank alcohol, they wouldn't drink. And They can go to a 12-step program and stop drinking. So there's some difference between diseases and the behaviors of addiction. There's a biological component to addiction, but it isn't purely a disease in the way we think of other diseases. So I like to use the term motivated behavior or addiction as a separate thing than disease, even though on the test, you should still say addiction because that's what everybody wants you to say right now. So, this idea of an infectious disease model of addictions, there's host susceptibility factors and when you get exposed and inoculation, the virulence of the agent. And these are all accurate. The issue is, again, nobody with an infectious disease goes to a 12-step program and stops having uh, SARS. It's just not how it works. So, um, I'm going to give you a slightly different model, and that's um, this idea of a behavior. So, you have an opportunity to do a behavior. Let's say, wear this tie with this shirt. And um, if uh, you guys say, wow, that's a great shirt and tie combination, I'll wear it more. And if SAG says to me, who dressed you, Stevie Wonder, I'll wear it less. And that's learning 101. It's how we all learn. We all learn this way. We discourage behaviors in our children that we don't want to see, and we encourage behaviors we do want to see. So um, if your kids uh, do something you don't want and you give them a little electric shock, they're less likely to do it. And if you give them an M&M, they're more likely to do it. And uh, my kids wore that kind of equipment for a while. They didn't like it. So. Um, but my, my kids said, Dad, this behavioral stuff, you know, we've all figured it out. So this, this is Learning 101. Now, for some things, though, there's a slightly different element to the behavioral part. And, um, so there's an opportunity to do a behavior, and then an environmental response. But for some behaviors, there's also a release of dopamine. When you do the behavior, and that's eating, sleeping, and sex. So when you, uh, the baby cries, that's a behavior, and he gets yummy milk, mm, milk, and he stops because he's full. And uh, then he gets hungry, and he cries, and he gets milk. And this is a positive re- re- reinforcement cycle, a, uh, a uh, positive feedback those are very dangerous in biology. They're dangerous because they can get out of control really easily. This is essentially an amplification loop. And anything that works this way is designed to amplify behaviors, behaviors that might otherwise stop. And uh, so, um, if, uh, so if you eat, you get a reward, and you get full, and you don't want to eat anymore. And there's always a turn-off for these kind of loops. So. Before Thanksgiving dinner, you make another relish tray, everything's great. You want to make one more thing, everything smells great. After dinner, you never want to go in the kitchen again in your whole life. It's off. Before dinner, you read the menu. You might read about things that you'd never actually order or last night have them ordered for you. And then, But after dinner, it's off. You don't ever want to see the menu again. You might look at the dessert menu. When you're driving home, if you're hungry, you notice restaurants. You stop and eat. You stop driving home, you notice bathrooms. And this cycle is changed profoundly by this turnoff. Now, one question you might ask is, what is that doing in your brain? Because this cycle could make you chubby. I know this. Uh, My doctor keeps telling me. But look, see how that could make you chubby? That's bad. Why is that in your brain? Anybody been food poisoned? Raise your hand if you've been food poisoned. When did you think you'd eat again? Never. Did you hear somebody say never? Someone always says never, because someone has really been food poisoned. And when you're in hour six of food poisoning, you say, I'm never eating again. And if some smart ass says to you, of course you're going to eat again, you'll starve to death, your doctor wife says, I'll have TPN. (laughs) I'm not eating food ever again. And they mean it. At that moment, they mean it. They mean they're never eating anything again. However, after a couple of days, you say, well, maybe some plain plain dry toast. Mmm, toast. Maybe some plain pasta. Mmm, pasta. And pretty soon, you're eating again. And that's there because 100,000 years ago, there was no Zagat's Guide or Internet. You couldn't look up which mushrooms are safe to eat, which ones weren't, and we got food poisoned a lot. And if we never ate again, we couldn't join us here today, because we, we were selected against. You were selected for. Your insane predecessors ate again, even though they'd been food poisoned a lot. Because if they didn't, they died. So this is there for behaviors necessary for survival. Sleep, same kind of thing. Um, if, if you have your house broken into while you're sleeping, a very charming experience. You say, I'm never sleeping again, and then you lie down on the couch, and take a nap. And uh, probably none of you have dated my ex-wife. But I want to assure you, it can go really wrong, and you can say never again with tremendous conviction. But after a couple of years, you say, well, maybe some plain dry toast. Mmm, toast. And um, then you're happily married to the most wonderful person in the world, and you have kids, and life's good. And this cycle is what makes that happen. Without this cycle, I want to assure you, never again would have, would have won the day. So, but drugs work here. So, um, if you, when you take drugs, you get this same, they directly hit this pathway. But there's no turnoff Because when we were evolving, drugs weren't in the mix. So we didn't evolve a turn-off with drugs. And so this cycle with drugs gets out of control pretty easily. And, um, elements of the kind of person, addictive personality, life experience, or diseases like major depression, affect whether you try the behavior. If you're a risk taker, you'll try the behavior. If you have a life experience where everybody uses drugs, you'll try the behavior. If you're depressed, you'll try the behavior. And so these things influence whether you try the behavior, how much reward you get from it, whether you turn off, and um, how much craving you get. So this cycle is open to the environment. In fact, it's open to all kinds of environmental things, like genes. So genes determine risk-taking behaviors, but genes also determine how much reinforcement you get from some drugs. Some people are genetically much more likely to release release dopamine with alcohol. Other people, genetically, much less likely to release dopamine from alcohol. And so people with genetic low dopamine release from alcohol are at decreased risk for alcoholism, unless they have some other factor that pushes them, or they really work at it. Um, and social connections and the other loops of, e- of work, hobbies, exercise, sleep, sex, and, uh, and, um, and eating compete with this cycle. So the normal things, a person with a very full and structured life is at much decreased risk for getting this out of control because the other things intrude on it, which is why you're not all addicted, even though you've tried things. So we can measure various elements of reinforcement. We can measure how hard you'll work to get it, what will you put up with to get it, what will you give up to get it, and what would you rather have? Um, and here's an example of that kind of study. When I was in graduate school, uh, we said cocaine was not addictive because there's no withdrawal from it, and Joe Brady said, yes, it is, and this was his little experiment. And when this baboon is in this cage, if he pushes this lever, he gets banana-flavored candy, I mean, pushes this lever when that lights on, he gets banana-flavored candy in that dish. And a hungry baboon will push that lever about uh, 50 times to get banana-flavored If you set the computer on 100 or 150, they just wait for dinner. Baboons know they cost $30,000 and you're not going to let them starve to death. (laughs) They'll give you the finger, but they won't push that lever more than that. Um, And then when this light comes on, this baboon gets whatever's in this syringe when he wiggles this lever. And a heroin-addicted baboon will push the lever 500 times for heroin, 10 times more than food. Um, If you set the computer on 750, the animal will go cold turkey and destroy your gizmo. Um, pretty much rip the cage to pieces. And if he can get out, kill you. But, uh, but, but he's not going to push that lever more than about 500, 600 times for heroin. And then he put cocaine in there, and a cocaine-addicted baboon will push the lever 5,000 times for cocaine. Remember that thing about sex with a person who hasn't bathed? Cocaine, baby. And so, um, 5,000 times. The, Joe Brady told me that the winning baboon in his lab push the lever 12,000 times for one dose of cocaine. Cocaine is powerfully reinforcing. It drives behavior. And psychiatric comorbidities, psychiatric conditions, contribute to the variance, and I'll show you some examples of that. Um, This is the cycle of life experience. This is the kind of problems a lot of our patients have. They experience things that are negative. They think that means that the world is a mean, hostile place. They assume that, and they behave accordingly. When they come to my clinic, they're sometimes rude to the nurses, and the nurses are rude back, and they say, see, and they assume that they're correct, and they keep behaving that way. And if you change their behavior by saying, I'll give you narcotics, but only if you're good, when they're good, they have a different experience. And they say, oh, it means that we have new nurses. No, and the same nurses, you've just changed your behavior. And the assumption is that the clinic will treat them differently, and the behavior changes more. And if you change in any of these four places, you get this cycle going, in direction you want. Believe it or not, you guys spend about half to three quarters of your time doing this with your patients. That's why you don't get paid by procedures, you get paid nothing. Because there's no way to code this. There's no way to measure it. Now, you can examine it in subjective terms, but in objective terms, this is a very hard thing to describe, and so it's hard to bill for. And so even though it's 70% of your time or 80% of your time, you can't code for it, you can't describe it, you can't bill for it, nobody understands it except you. We all understand that we have to do this or our patients won't get better. Patients won't just take the medicine. If you say you have HIV, you walk up to this machine, you put your finger in it, it tests you, and then you pull this lever and it gives you heart, people won't do it. In fact, it's hard to get them to do it anyway. We want to retain them in care. And develop a relationship with them because we know that works, and that's this. And if you don't do it, you get nowhere. Um, there's a, a pathway I just showed you where you do a behavior and you get a reward, and that's there for most behaviors. But when you're depressed, when you have major depression of the disease kind, that reward pathway doesn't work. When you eat, you get this. when you bowl, even bowling can be interrupted by this condition. But drugs will still cause a reward. So the addictive pathway still works, and so people who have depression are more likely to shunt this way and more likely to get addicted. And then uh, various HIV-related and other viral-related things will cause depression. So uh, cytokines and CNS inflammation and sympathetic activation and stress increase depression, and those things interrupt this reward pathway. So all of these things make this more likely and make this more likely and that's why your patients who were never drug users before they got HIV are still at dramatically increased risk of developing addictions. And then, lastly, I want to talk about personality for a minute. Um, personality disorders are probably the most misunderstood part of psychiatry. When you guys refer someone to me and say, I think this guy's a personality disorder, what you usually mean is, I hate this guy. And um, we don't refer to people. We don't say that the person has a personality disorder, we say he is a personality disorder, and that's because personality is what you are. And so there's these dimensional traits in people like IQ and height, where there's a few short people, a lot of average people and a few tall people. And personality works that way. We only going to talk about one element of it. we am going to talk about introversion, and extroversion. And introversion is that element of personality that makes you avoid risks, avoid consequences. Directed at the future rather than at now. And directed at function rather than feelings. And extroversion directs people at rewards now and feelings. And so uh, you guys are mostly in this part of the curve. You're consequence averse. And you worry if you don't do this, what bad thing will happen. If you don't pay your taxes, something bad will happen. If you don't check the creatinine every 45 seconds, something bad will happen. And um, if the creatinine's up a little bit, then you just start checking it every four hours until you see that it's really just a lab error. At Hopkins, the creatinine can vary by 7,000 points in the same blood sample. Um, so, uh, so you guys are mostly here on this part of the curve, and you're really good at being doctors, and nurses, and professionals. And you're not so great at uh, being a con man or dancing. Because when you dance, If you try to avoid doing it wrong, you're not a very good dancer. To dance, you have to try to do it right. And that's not the same as avoiding doing it wrong. And so, um, my accountant is right there. He's extremely introverted and neurotic, and a wonderful guy, and a great accountant. But he adds up the numbers a lot of times to make sure they're right. And um, we went out to lunch one time after my taxes, and this gorgeous woman walked by this restaurant, I said, God, look at that gorgeous woman. He said, yes, she probably has venereal disease. (laughs) I see a beautiful woman. He sees chlamydia. And and it's because what if that 20-some-year-old woman decided that seeing an older 50-some-year-old man eating a corned beef sandwich was so erotically stimulating that she ran in and threw herself on us, he has a reason to stop, prepared in advance. I have no such reason because... I have no such fantasy. Uh, But um, over on this end of the curve, on the extroverted end of the curve, are uh, rock stars and CEOs of corporations, presidents of the United States, governors of New York, uh, congressmen, senators. They are now focused, charismatic, get it done, do what needs to be done, reward-directed, I'm going to be paid on commission kind of guys. And they run the world. But they're vulnerable, and um, rock stars. Madonna is probably about someplace <laughs> over there, and she, but she's doing okay because extrovert. Being an extrovert is not bad, despite the people who write about this stuff's pejorative view of extroverts. They're not bad, but they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to the kind of stuff when Clinton got in trouble. My father said he was an introvert. Said what was he thinking? They're vulnerable to not thinking. <laughs> he wasn't thinking. He said, "Oh, that feels pretty good," and then wham! Right? Because the, the problem with being an extrovert is you keep getting whammed over and over again, and you wrote a check to a hooker when you campaigned against prostitution as part of your, really? And so, um, because I felt like it, and you don't understand how I felt, I don't care how you felt. I care what you did. You're not very sympathetic, Dr. Treesman. And so um, our patients, the personality vulnerable ones, are mostly extroverts their feelings run their life. And they do what their feelings tell them to do, even though you're saying that could be bad for you. The way to get them to change their behavior is to use rewards. Say, if you do this thing that's good for you, you'll get this good thing. Not, if you don't stop doing this bad thing, this bad thing will happen. Because way worse things have already happened to those patients than anything you could think of. And they tell you about them if you'll listen, and it's awful. But it doesn't change their behavior. My guy who robbed the same liquor store two blocks from his house that he got robbed the first time he went to jail. I said, you go to that liquor store and they know you there. Why would you rob that? He said, I needed money as close to the house. Okay. I'm not the first person to notice the relationship between personality and uh, STDs. This is you're full of moxie, also gonorrhea. And there is a Another curve, the stability-instability curve. I won't talk about today, except when you put these two curves together, you get the four Greek humors that the Greeks talked about 3,000 years ago: phlegmatic patients, sanguine patients, melancholy patients, and treasman consultation patients. And uh, they're still the same as they were. Here's the far side version: the glass is half empty, the glass is half full, half full, no, wait, half empty. What was the question? And hey, I ordered a cheeseburger. <laughs> That's my guy. Hey, I ordered Tylox, Percocet. Benzos. Can I have some clonopin? So why doesn't everyone get addicted? Because um, this other cycles eating, sleeping, sex, work, hobbies, exercise, rela- social relationships interfere with this cycle. And it's only in people who those things fall away from that this cycle gets out of control. And so you have to reestablish that cycle. And um, one of the guys in our lab did this great experiment where he um, Put, he had a rat in the cage. I, I worked with pigeons. Uh, Joe worked with baboons. He worked with rats. When you put a rat in the cage, um, every time the light would come on, he'd press the, lever, the rat would press the lever 30 times to get a shot of cocaine. He did it every six hours for three days. And then he took the cage to the old barber gymnasium and uh, opened the door for six hours. And what do you think happened when he came back? The rat was gone and he never came back. Because to the key to the experiment isn't the cocaine. Key to the experiment is the cage. The animal's in a cage, which is what makes this go, which is why you're not addicted, and which is why your patients are. They're in a cage of major depression, personality vulnerability, and an environment where uh, there's a lot of essential hostility. And so from that, the core treatment elements are conversion, detoxification, rehabilitation, treatment of comorbid psychiatric conditions, and relapse prevention. Conversion is getting the person to say, I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem. I need treatment. Because all the patients say, you don't understand, Dr. Treesman, if it weren't illegal, it wouldn't be a problem. If it weren't illegal, you would still die from it. In countries where it's legal, people are still dying from it. You saw that map. Um, and getting people to do that requires motivational interviewing and confrontation with a smile and trying to get people to come along with you. Um, detoxification is necessary. While the person is using drugs, they won't stop using drugs. You have to get them sober enough so they can have a conversation with you and engage in treatment. And if they're coming to the clinic high, you got nowhere. And it's very difficult to detoxify people from anything but alcohol, because alcohol withdrawal is life-threatening. And even though heroin use and cocaine use are extremely life-threatening, insurance companies have figured out that because the withdrawal isn't life-threatening, they can use that as an excuse to not let you put them in the hospital for detox. And it's crap. Say they're depressed, and put them in and get them detoxed. Um, You need to detoxify people. You need to rehabilitate people. You need to put back in those things that have been lost, like relationships with other people, religion, social connections, work, hobbies, and exercise, sleep. The things that people fall away from as they get more and more addicted need to be reinstated, or the person will go back to addiction. Because those are the things that protect you from that cycle getting out of control. So you have to rehabilitate people. You have to treat their depression. You have to treat their personality disorder. And you have to treat their life circumstances. And you're all good at that. Or you wouldn't be here. But you have to do it. And if it gets left out, if you just keep, give people Suboxone, don't treat their depression, you lose them. And uh, last, relapse prevention. Now, um, I was going to go through these things uh, individually, but I'm going to just say one thing about um, adjunctive treatment. And that is, Suboxone is not neither is any other drug, is not a definitive treatment for addiction in the way that penicillin is a treatment for for pneumococcus. Suboxone is an adjunct. You're getting the person addicted to your drug, so when they use their drug, they don't get any reinforcement from it. And so they have to come to you to get your drug, because you're now their new dealer. And then while they're coming, instead of making them have sex with people who are dirty, you make them go to groups and go to 12-step programs, and get rehabilitated. And once they're rehabilitated, most of them can come off Suboxone. Now, you can leave them on, it doesn't matter. Suboxone isn't very uh, 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 disabling, it's not very injurious. to. But but people aren't 100% on Suboxone. So it's better if you can get them off eventually. But you can't get them off right away, because they have to have a reason to keep coming to see you, and getting them addicted to Suboxone is a good one. So I addict people to Suboxone all the time. But I tell them that I'm not going to just give them Suboxone. They have to go to AA or NA meetings, they have to engage in treatment, they have to get rehabilitated, and ultimately, as SAG will tell you, I make them have 40 hours of structured activity a week. In order to get Suboxone, you have to be doing something. I'm disabled. No, you're not really disabled, you're unwilling, those are different. But, I don't care if you're getting disability or not. I care if you're doing something, you can volunteer, you can clean the streets, you can do anything you want, but you have to have 40 hours of structured activity a week. Because those are the things that create the cycles that are in normal life. Relationships, connections to people. And those are the things that protect you from relapsing to addiction. Um, those are in your handouts if you want to look at them. But they're just things that are adjunctive. And this is a cute little study. Um, and it really, is a, it really is an amazing little study. So this mousey... When that light comes on, pokes his head through this little thing, and he gets cocaine. And when the red light comes on, if he pokes his head through that little thing, he gets an electric shock. Now, what happens if you turn on both lights? Most mousies will not poke their nose through there. About 15% will. Most won't. However, if you continue to expose them to the drug for a long time or very high doses, more and more of the mousies will put their nose through there and get the electric shock it. So you can make the animals addicted by continuing exposure. It's not just about, biologically, a lot of these mice will become addicted, 15% will become addicted, just on a couple of exposures. But the vast majority won't. They require something else, major depression, or very high dose exposure, or some other thing that drives their addiction. And so these models are useful in thinking about what we're doing with patients. Your insurance company authorized me to take out one, you pick. Here's the the struggle you all have. People are pressuring you right now to see more patients faster, be more efficient, have better outcomes. My patients have worse outcomes and require more time and are less efficient. What's happening is under those pressures, my patients are disenfranchised from care. You don't want to take care of them. They have bad outcomes. I want you to take care of them because they're driving the HIV epidemic. They are the vector. You want to take care of them because that's why you went into this. And so we have to push back and demand more. It's not about better outcomes. It's about better treatment. It's about coherent treatment. And it's about integrated treatment. Every HIV clinic should have substance abuse and psychiatry in it. Every psychiatry program should have substance abuse and HIV treatment in it. And every substance abuse program should have HIV and psychiatry treatment in it. And this idea that if someone's an alcoholic, they shouldn't take an antidepressant is ridiculous. And it's this separation drug addiction over here, HIV over here, psychiatry over here, that is making us ruined. can't take out one arrow, you have to take out all the arrows, and you'll do great with your patients. Thank you for inviting me back to Washington.
0: I think we're supposed to do the questions again. Okay, do the questions.
1: I, I we are out of time for questions. Now you can do okay. it. Okay. All right. So uh, here's the first question: fifty-seven-year-old white married male. Which is all these are, are risk for increased risk for addiction, except and vote. And fifty-seven-year-old uh, white married male with difficult, high-stress job. You can read them. And now we can talk about this a little bit. And you're all right. When you lose your job, you lose your structure. So if you get fired for irritating the Dean, you lose your structure. If you have a lot of first-degree family relatives with substance abuse, you're exposed to it early and it's nominated, it's okay, and so you do more of it. And if you have major depression, or two female first-degree relatives with, major, with, with addiction, which means that, major, that means major depression, you're at a much higher risk. Um, which of the, all the following elements have been described as uh, important elements of treatment for addiction, except. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, all of um, all of, which of the following? Go ahead. The answer is perfect, and that's correct. You get someone to admit they're addicted, detoxify them, rehabilitate them, and reinstate those things that protect you from addiction and prevent them from relapsing.
0: All the following are
1: true about drugs that cause addiction, except all addictive drugs will increase the rate or frequency of behaviors right before they're given, all addictive drugs are self-administered, all drugs that can cause withdrawal, such as caffeine, cause addiction, all drugs that cause addiction have been found to have an action of dopamine receptors in the brain, and addictive drugs vary in the likelihood of causing addiction. Good. Although, I have to say, um, I didn't talk much about the fact that they vary in the likelihood of causing addiction. They do. So uh, so I, I was shooting for uh, the one that 54% of you said, which is uh, all drugs that can cause withdrawal. I don't think that's true. Caffeine causes withdrawal, but doesn't cause addiction. So, uh, Or rarely causes addiction.
0: All right. Thank you. No, no, so I've got a couple questions here. So um, first off, th- the reason I'm subdued is I'm a little bit nervous lately because I've been buying cocaine from the guy down the street who shot me, Yeah. Yeah.
1: One of my patients said this. So I write down the best things patients ever say to me. And one of the things the patient said to me is, Dr. Reisman, I've been very nervous lately because I've been buying cocaine from the guy who shot me. And I said, why do you buy cocaine from the guy who shot you? And he said, well, because he has cocaine. And, and I said, I really like prime rib. You can look at me and tell I like prime rib. But if I went to the prime rib restaurant and the maitre d' shot me, I wouldn't go there anymore. And he said, you know, Dr. with an attitude like that, you could miss out on some really good meat. <laughs> and it describes, I think it describes extroversion perfectly, you know. It's whoosh.
0: Okay, so uh, what about in an HCV mono-infected patient care setting like a clinic that's treating HCV, what about putting in uh, sort of an integrated care model there?
1: Data shows it's better. So HCV is a risk factor for depression. Interferon is a risk factor for depression, although interferon's going to be gone shortly. But even without interferon, there's a huge increased risk for depression in patients with HCV. There's probably increased brain inflammation in patients with HCV. They're probably slightly cognitively impaired and having integrated treatment is the right way to go. And there's a huge comorbid substance use problem. Right. So hepatitis C integrated care is a model, and we are actually modeling that around the US, and model programs show dramatically better outcomes.
0: So what about marijuana, and in particular, medical marijuana?
1: Well, so uh, medical marijuana is a really interesting thing. Um, the uh, the kind of data that's required uh, to get an HIV drug on the market has not been done for marijuana. It just hasn't. There isn't much evidence that marijuana is good for anything. If you are dying of cancer, it does make you more comfortable. But it doesn't treat ADHD. Chronic pain patients are more dysfunctional, not less dysfunctional on marijuana. And if you want people to gain weight, they gain more weight on your or on Zyprexa than they do on marijuana. So uh, marijuana has a use-to-abuse ratio similar to alcohol, maybe a little less, between 1 in 20 and 1 in 40 people. That means if you give people marijuana access, 1 in 20 and 1 in 40 will get addicted to it and dysfunction from it. And that's that's a, an okay ratio as far as I'm concerned. We, alcohol is legal. Marijuana should probably be legal. But if you're going to legalize it, then you have to build into that a plan for the 1 in 20 people who are going to get in serious trouble for it. And you have to make plans that that's going to happen, because it's going to. People are going to drive under it. People are going to ruin their lives because of it. People are going to be doing it every day.
0: And um,
1: the other two things about marijuana that people don't know is that there's a dramatic increased risk for schizophrenia Mm -hmm. in young men who have a genetic risk for schizophrenia with marijuana, especially the new high-potency drugs that are out there. And the other thing that people don't know is marijuana has a long-term effect of decreasing will and drive. And so uh, it mellows you out, but it mellows you out a lot longer than you meant to be mellowed out. It's not just how how, during the time you're intoxicated. It decreases your drive to succeed, your drive to achieve. And for some people, that takes a lot of stress off of them. But uh, it's a little bit like the land of the lotus eaters. And uh, it is a big problem for marijuana. So those are things to know about. Um, Right now, having 3 quarters of the population of the planet locked up in jails because of marijuana seems stupid to me. And the war on drugs has been lost. Drugs won. And we should do something different, like treatment. But you're going to legalize marijuana, you have to build in a plan to treat people
0: for addiction. I remember you telling me years ago about the schizophrenia thing. And I thought about it twice very recently. Once was the shooting of Gabriel Giffords, that guy. And then the guy with the uh, uh, shooting in in, uh, Connecticut was a similar situation.
1: Yeah. And marijuana makes you crazy. I the data is incontrovertible. Yeah. It, it, we couldn't show it for a long time because the drugs weren't potent back when we were doing the first studies, but now.
0: And what's the frequency of that gene or that? Uh, so, approximately
1: 1% of the population has schizophrenia. Um, the gene frequency is probably, you know, 10, 12%. And it's, it's polygenic, so there's a lot yeah, of different yeah. risk genes. And, and the people are probably at double to, to triple the risk. Um, So you add it up population-wise, maybe it will double the population of schizophrenia from 1 in 100 to 1 in 70, 1 in 50, um, if if everybody smokes pot. And uh, schizophrenia is a lifetime disabling disease and probably the most expensive disease there is to have. Because you have it for 70 years, or actually 50 years, and it's totally disabling, and it requires huge amounts of maintenance for these patients. Right. So it'd be like it'd be like getting Alzheimer's
0: when you're twenty, pretty bad. Right. Question back here. Um, um, I, I agree with you and I know that the more it's structured, the structure better the more people have, the better they do. But we also know that hypertension and diabetes is part
1: of you know, your regimen and so you the exercise, but we wouldn't have told. Yeah, so, so you raise a hugely good point. This is a point I fight about all the time. There is a harm reduction idea that if you give everybody who's a drug addict Suboxone, that you'll decrease their harm. And there's no question about it. It decreases harm. It decreases their likelihood of transmitting HIV. It decreases their likelihood of getting HIV. It decreases their likelihood of committing crime. However, their outcomes aren't very good. And um, it's people che- people that's right, and it's and it's cheaper, and so uh, it depends on the way you see the world. I'll tell you what pushed me away from harm reduction. I went to Switzerland many years ago to visit the free heroin clinics they have there. You can go into those clinics and get morphine or heroin all you want. And the guy who was showing them to me said, "We have virtually no crime because of this. We have virtually no transmission because of." However, the drug addicts there, I said, your addicts look just like mine. They're skinny and filthy, and they're sleeping in the street, and they, they're not taking the HIV medicines that are free here and provided for them. They're not getting tested. He said, yes, but that that the Eastern Europeans. we <laughs> yeah. got plenty of Eastern Europeans here for the same reason. And inadequate treatment is mostly a matter, not of the patient not cooperating, for drug treatment, but of us not being willing to pony up real treatment, because I do really well with patients when I give them real treatment, and the problem is resources. And if you say we could do harm reduction, people will fund that and not real treatment, and um, it still discards those patients. So it's not individualized treatment as well. absolutely, and so and so and so, I don't deny people. Treatment. But if somebody wants a stab and grab Suboxone program where they just go and get Suboxone and do whatever they want, there are plenty around, I refer them to. Absolutely. But I but I do think that if we that if we were coherent in medicine, we would say you can either have Suboxone treatment and be serious about getting better, or you don't get any of these other resources we give to people who are vulnerable, like money. Housing, and that would change the whole game plan. And uh, people say, well, gee, it, you know, you can't do that, you can't cut those things up. Which city do you think has the highest mortality from opiate overdose in the country? It's San Francisco. Which city do you think spends the most money per drug addict in the country? It's San Francisco. However, there's no pressure to treatment there, there's no connection between treatment and resources. And I think that's a big issue. People can have all the opiates they want, and they can get these single-room occupancy things. They go in there, and they overdose, and they die. And their solution to that, by the way, was not to require people to go to an AA meeting every day in order to live in those single-room occupancy houses and to have treatment. Their response to that was to try to train the people who work in those places to do CPR and and to try to get a special law passed that if the police came, they couldn't arrest anybody else while they were there, so the police would be more likely to be summoned if somebody overdosed. And it's just we're dancing around this idea of this: people who are sick with psychiatric disorders are not like people who are sick with medical disorders. People with medical disorders don't necessarily have impaired autonomy. So your diabetic patient makes the decision at least, at least reasonably autonomously. But someone who's addicted has zero autonomy. Those are the people who have sex with somebody in an alley for one rock. That's not an autonomous person. People with mental illness have impaired autonomy. And therefore, the idea that we're being paternalistic when we try to save their lives, that's it's It's not a- I agree. Yeah, it's a continuum of stuff. not absolutely an patient, but I mean, it's a matter of fact, a structured idea that the, the, the pieces in your basket, the multiple things, and, the, you know, a voice line, you know, having fun mm-hmm. of as well. Right. And to give you an example, people with schizophrenia right now with 10 to 20 years less in age-adjusted years than they did in the 1950s when we were more paternalistic about their treatment. 10 to 20 years less life, not right. Anyway, it's a a great conversation, because it really is the issue.
0: there was one last question, but the question uh, is really probably next year's topic, because you could speak on it for the whole time, which is, what about narcotic treatment for people with chronic pain? Yeah, so that's a good that's a really good question.
1: So, uh, I'll be very brief. There's no data to suggest that chronic pain is well treated by narcotics. There's a huge number of studies. They're all at 6 weeks you get benefit, at 20 weeks you don't. So, acute pain, narcotics are great. Chronic pain, narcotics are probably pretty much not so great, maybe worthless. And probably and so, cause depression. And they cause depression and They actually can exacerbate pain by a thing called an opiate-maintained pain syndrome or opiate-mediated hyperalgesia. So we we use way too much opiates in chronic pain. Um, And that doesn't mean you'd never do it. It means when you do it, you have to be very critical about who you're doing it with and why and what your goals are. Because if someone's dying of cancer, it's ridiculous to deny them narcotics. But if somebody has low back pain and you put them on narcotics and disability, Believe it or not, in my view, you haven't done them a service. You've done them a disservice.
0: So we'll talk about we'll talk about that probably some more next year. But thank you very much. Thank you. And, uh, and thank you all for having me. <laughs> That's a
1: now, isn't
0: <laughs> That's behavior modification. Um, okay, so we made it through the morning. And we're going to break for, just to go get a box lunch and come back and we're going to have a panel on the use of antiretroviral therapy uh, that Joe Wearon is going to run. So let's take about 10, 15 minutes get your box lunch, come back in and we'll get restarted. Thank you.